What gender is an Oompa Loompa? Welcome to Answers News for Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. Hello, I'm Dr. Georgia Purdom, and I'm here with Patricia Engler and Avery Foley. And today we'll be discussing the removal of offensive language from classic children's literature, um, in addition to other news stories. But let's start with the first one, which is... Royal Doll Books Rewritten to Remove Language Deemed Offensive. And so I never thought I'd hear a sentence about an Oompa Loompa <laughs> on, uh, on Answers News, but nonetheless, here it is. And by the way, we'd like to welcome back Avery Foley because she hasn't been able to be with us for a couple of years now. And so it's yes. really, really great that she can be back on part of our Answers News team here. I'm so. very glad to finally be back. I'm yeah. glad to have a fellow Canadian here. Yes, it's great. So we got two Canadians on the panel two today. today so. Okay. So in this article, basically, and, and this has been hitting the news kind of big time right now, what has happened to, I, I love Royal Doll books. Um, I think of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and James and the Giant Peach and um, those kinds of books that he has written. And what they have decided is that some of the, the language that is used in those books is now offensive and therefore it should be removed and changed and rewritten. Um, in order to make the book uh, appropriate in today's society. And we're not talking here just like minor little like words being edited out. They're rewriting whole sections, adding in new content that wasn't in there in the first place. Um, as much as the inclusivity readers determine it needs to be changed. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Like one of the, basically the company that helped rewrite it was called Inclusive Minds. And their co-founder said that they aim to ensure authentic representation by working closely with the book world and with those who have lived experience of any facet of diversity. Mm -hmm. So what does lived experience mean? What are they getting? at there. So with lived experience, they're talking basically about all your intersectionality panels. So people who've experienced different things and the more boxes you tick on that intersectionality list, the more lived experience you have, the more your voice matters in determining what is uh, able to be been in these books, basically. Yeah, sure. yeah. And it seems pretty random and arbitrary. Very. Like, we, like we looked through some of the changes. And so like you can call... You can call somebody, um, so they, you know, it's words that talk about someone's physical appearance. So instead of calling Augustus Gloop fat, because that's offensive, we need to call him enormous. But the problem is, like we were saying, enormous, what does that mean? Right, right? Yeah. I mean, somebody's really fat or somebody's really, really tall, tall has or, huge you know, what features, does that mean? Like, yeah, yeah, um, it so it's, the meaning The problem it. is, is it's changing things. And it seems kind of like, again, arbitrary because like Mrs. Twit in one of the books, she can be called beastly, just not ugly and beastly. <laughs> so it's... Like you can compare her to an animal, but you can't say she's ugly. That's right. too much. <laughs> and right. one of the bigger issues going on here is we've talked about it before, but this all this these changes we're seeing in this kind of censorship idea that we're seeing, it's based on the idea that society is made up of oppressed and oppressing classes. Mm -hmm. These days Christians are usually grouped as the oppressors, even though that doesn't actually line up with scripture. So then the idea is that the lived experience or the feelings and um, kind of the anecdotes of people in classes considered oppressed are basically treated as the authority for truth over what everybody else says. So um, that's one of the things you're seeing here. And it's just this, this idea. Some people call it uh, Gnosticism. So that's the idea that there's the secret knowledge that if you're not in the mm -hmm. oppressed class, you can't really understand. So then you just get this one group that's basically treated as the authority for truth that other people aren't allowed to disagree with. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And one of the changes that we alluded to at the beginning was with the Oompa Loompas. They can't be called small men anymore. Now they're small people. So just taking out the whole reference to the gender of Oompa Loompas. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of gender neutral language that they weren't used in the book. So, Mm -hmm. and and we've talked about this on Answers News before, where even the Anglican Church was wanting to, Mm -hmm. or Church of England, I forget exactly what it was, but they wanted to use more gender neutral language to refer to God. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but God has preferred pronouns. <laughs> he uses those in scripture. So they're all yeah. about using people's preferred pronouns. But yet when it comes to God, oh no, we have to use mm-hmm. what we deem. And again, it's not about really about what they prefer. It's about what these inclusivity or, you know, sensitivity readers or whatever they're <laughs> called um, will deem is correct, right? And they're doing that on the basis of a worldview that does not start with God's mm-hmm. word. It starts with their own reasoning apart from God's word. And so that's why it comes out very arbitrary, very inconsistent, very. Mm-hmm. and very problematic. And where do you stop? Mm-hmm. Where, do you, yeah. where do you stop deciding what's offensive and what's not? What books or what works are uh, set apart where we don't edit, we don't change that? Like the Bible, for example, we've already seen certain groups edit and change the Bible to make it say what they want it to say. Yeah. Take out passages that, for example, say homosexuality is a sin, things like that. Well, we'll just take that part out. We'll literally change it. The Queen James Bible is an example of that. Um, where do you stop, yeah. basically? Yeah. Um, because if man determines truth, then it doesn't matter if you edit the Bible or not. Because... It's not the word of God. It's just the, the words of men. So why not change right. it? But of course, the Bible is the word of God. We shouldn't be adding to or taking away from, from God's word as God word, God's word warns us. And that's why I say too, buy books. <laughs> buy actual physical Hard copies copies. of books. Because the digital ones can be changed very, very easily. And buy them now. Because my, my concern is, you know, I mean, I think about the future and possibly having grandchildren mm-hmm. someday. I mean, I'd love for them to be able to read some of these stories as they were originally written. Um, by the author who has a right to say what is in his or her book. Um, and so it is interesting. But I think especially of the Bible, like you said, it's important to have those physical copies mm-hmm. of the Bible. Um, because things like this can easily get changed and so we have to have those things so absolutely yeah. mm-hmm. okay so another kind of related story georgia the meaning the state of georgia might change school librarian might charge school librarians for explicit books so the idea here is that and, and this just boggles my mind but there are <laughs> explicit books sexually explicit books in school libraries and so um they want the librarians to be charged with a misdemeanor of a high and aggravated nature if they allow young children um, to check out sexually explicit books. So what's wrong with that whole, I mean, okay, so that's a good thing that they want to do, but <laughs> right. what is, what, wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah, we've well, seen report, repeated examples in the news of some of these books that are actually in school libraries across the country that are absolutely horrible. I've read some of them myself, looked at the, the problem passages, and they are very explicit for adults, let alone for young, impressionable children who are reading these works. And right now, the laws protect librarians, so they don't. there's no um, consequences for them to loan these books out to children. And what they're trying to do here is change that so that these librarians would actually suffer consequences for giving sexually explicit material to children, which I think is a really good move, and we need to see more of that too, because children's innocence deserves to be protected um, from people who are, who are actively trying to harm children and to groom them uh, through these different materials that are being distributed through public libraries, through school libraries, and so on. Well, yeah, well said, and it just highlights a real inconsistency here, right, because yeah. you have to edit out words like fat from kids' books before you can publish them, and yet you're allowed to give kids very explicit material, so it really shows you um, this kind of double standard going yeah. on, and another 
another double standard that um, we chatted about a little before this is um, one of these ladies who's concerned about these materials in the kids' books read out loud at a school board meeting what was in some of the passages and got kicked out of the meeting. Because so, you can't say sexually explicit things in a school in, in the school yeah. meeting before adults. But she's like, but this is what's in the material my children are seeing in school. Right. And yet people are getting up in arms about this because mm -hmm. they're saying, well, this is to protect kids' mental health and of the vulnerable um, young people. This is why we need these materials in the libraries because otherwise they won't be well-rounded people and they're going to suffer. So this is an example of something. It's a type of logical, some people call it a fallacy. It's a rhetoric trick basically called the Mott and Bailey fallacy. So what it is is it takes something that's hard to defend, like the idea of giving very explicit contact. Uh, content to young people, yep. and then it couches it in terms that are easy to defend, in this case, protecting the mental health of vulnerable young people. So when you hear that kind of thing, you just have to say, okay, wait a minute, back up. What are we actually advocating for here? Let's talk about that. Does this mm -hmm. actually protect vulnerable people? So uh, you've talked a lot about um, gender issues and, and young people, So, and as a mom, like, does giving <laughs> explicit content <laughs> to young people actually protect their health? No, it doesn't. It absolutely exploits vulnerable young people because the very people they claim that they want to, like when they say most vulnerable students, they're talking about students who uh, would identify somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum, most likely that's who they're referring to here. Those are some of the most vulnerable children because if you look at um, the mental health of those children, Many of them suffer from depression and anxiety and all kinds of different um, personality disorders and things. And so they're the most vulnerable children. And giving them material that just leads them down a path that's going to lead to more and more damage to their bodies and to their minds is not protecting their mental health and making them well-rounded citizens of the world, as this person says. It's leading them down a dark and destructive path that's probably going to end with bodily mutilation in the case of trans yeah. stuff or hurting their bodies with other people in the case of some of the other letters of the alphabet. It, of the it really alphabet. is selling porn. I mean, not selling. It's giving porn to kids. It, it is really what it is. is. And this is part of a lot of the, if you've heard of comprehensive sex education mm -hmm. that they're trying to get into a lot of school districts, um, that is the reason that a lot of these books are there um, to basically supposedly train children and help them understand these things better. But honestly, what a lot of this is, is just grooming children. It's mm -hmm. grooming children for sexual abuse by adults. And so that, that's sad, but that's what we need to understand mm -hmm. is really going on here and behind a lot of this. So I applaud these mm -hmm. senators that are willing to come forward and say enough is enough. We want to protect mm -hmm. our children, protect these vulnerable children uh, from seeing things like this, from reading things like this. And, and one of the points that you made was this is why it's so important to contact your elected mm -hmm. officials because that's yeah. what this one woman kept doing in here. Mm -hmm. She kept sending emails to her senator being like, look what's in the schools, look what's in the schools, protect these children, protect these children. And it's making a difference. So we definitely need to continue yeah. to do that. Yeah. They're, they are elected and they can be unelected, so to speak. So, uh, so we have a right to say those things and, and we have to, um, again, try as much as we can to protect those, uh, those children. All right, signs of Mars life may be too elusive for rovers to detect. So this is our weekly installment of why, yet again, <laughs> we cannot detect life on other planets. Okay, so we, we've seen a whole plethora of different articles on this to try to explain. Because from an evolutionary standpoint, if the universe is 15 billion years old and the Earth is only 4.5 billion years old and there's life here and it evolved in that short a period of time, well, then there must be life out there somewhere else because there's lots more time for life to evolve and they're more intelligent and they should be able to communicate with us and, you know, 
so on and so forth. So that's why they think that there should be something out there. But yet over and over again, it just keeps coming back a big old fat zero. We can't find any evidence for it. Yeah, and, and in the article they say, well, there, there, there's evidence that there was liquid water on Mars. Everywhere where there's water on Earth, there's life. So there's got to have been life on Mars at some point if there was at some point liquid water, right? And yet we haven't found it yet. Uh, so they actually did an experiment um, where they took the, the different instruments they used to look for these signatures of life, and they took them into the desert and in Chile and tried to detect life in Chile, where we, of course, we know there's life. It's here on Earth. There's life in the desert. Um, and the instruments that been, they would be using on Mars can't actually find life in Chile, where we know there's life because the instruments aren't sensitive enough. And when I read this, I thought, okay, they spent millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars sending stuff to Mars, and they didn't even test it first to make sure it could find yeah. life here before they sent it off. Oh, boy. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it just kind of shows you, like, the observational science, what you can observe in the present, at least from what they know, is that there is no signs of life on Mars. But because of these evolutionary assumptions, mm -hmm. it's like, well, there must be life, so there must be something wrong with our instruments. So it shows that the assumptions you use going in affect the conclusions and the, the methods that you're going to reach. Um, mm -hmm. And it was also, I don't know, it's, it's kind of ironic that there's origins of life problems for getting life to evolve on Earth in the first place. It's like basically yeah. impossible. <laughs> so to, to assume that it happened on other places too, you're kind of like compounding that issue, making the virtually impossible happen multiple times over, but people don't usually talk about that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know, and one of the things I always keep bringing up with this is that if if life evolved on a different planet, on another planet, how would you even know to um, develop something to detect it? Because why would it necessarily be like life here on Earth? Like evolution is just random chance processes. So right. like, how do you know that it evolved the same way somewhere else? Like, how do we even know we can detect it even if it's there? That, sometimes that's the article. Well, it's so different that we can't even detect it. That's the next, you know, that's another excuse that they use <laughs> and their whole, you know, um, uh, cadre of things to say against it. But uh, again, just because you have water and there's not even liquid water on Mars, mind you. Okay. But there's, there seems to have been water at some point at least and organic molecules that doesn't equal life, right? You have to not have information. <laughs> so information requires an information giver, a designer to design the information in order to give life. So, but it is cool because they do talk about and hear about what they call the dark microbiome. So just like we yeah. have dark matter and dark energy, I love studying microbes. Um, so there's this whole, there's a huge diversity of microorganisms that live on this planet that we don't even know hardly anything about. And so I get why they're thinking that we, there might be life out there, so to speak. But, um, uh, but again, it, we we can't even, we can barely detect some of this life here, much less be able to detect it <laughs> right. somewhere else. Yeah. So. Okay. Ohio University researchers help reveal evolution of oldest spinosaur brains. Okay. So this is a very, it's an interesting article talking about some of these spinosaurs like Baryonyx and some of those um, that actually have Big more of a, they look dinosaurs. more like a crop. Yeah, they have a sailback. You saw them in Jurassic Park 3, if you remember that movie, <laughs> okay? So they have a sail kind of on the back and they have more of a crocodile-like face, basically. So that's how you kind of understand what they look like. But 
so they're able to, some of these are very well preserved. And so from that really good preservation, they're able to sort of model what the actual soft tissue of the brain may have looked like, which is actually really, really neat yeah. that they're able to do that because the preservation is so good because, you know, they were buried <laughs> not millions of years ago, but very, very quickly, just a few thousand years ago when the flood occurred. That's why they're even able to do this. But yes. <laughs> anyways, um, so the thing that they're... Um, the thing that they're finding with these is that um, they're not, they're trying to understand how the brain evolved, even though what they're really looking at is the brain. That's right. The reconstruction of the brain. Right. Which Based is something on a scan you can observe the in the present. So that's yeah. like all these types of articles and textbooks. What you're usually going to find is a mix of facts from observational science, things mm -hmm. you can observe in the present, and assumptions or interpretations about what happened in the past based on starting with the idea that evolution actually can happen and, in fact, did happen. And then you go back and say, well, this is what we see. Therefore, this is what must have evolved to become that way. And what they found kind of surprised them anyway. They, they think that this particular dinosaur lived on the edge of waterways and was kind of like an ambush predator, like a crocodile or an alligator, something like that. And when they reconstructed the brain and they looked at it, they were surprised that they found that it didn't really look like what they would expect from a semi-aquatic animal. So they're like, well, I guess they already had this brain that sort of worked for that. And all they had to do was just evolve the teeth and the snout to go with it. And then they were good to go. <laughs> like, it's so easy. Just, you know, get yeah. that snout and yeah. teeth. Even, it's fine. Even though evolution can't actually plan things. It doesn't nope. have foresight. <laughs> People sometimes talk as if it does, but it is a just chance, natural processes. So Yeah. And it is very complex, too. I mean, I'm a geneticist, so, so looking at evolution from a genetic standpoint, it's very, very complex what you have to develop, even to develop what might seemingly be a simple structure or a simple <laughs> the whole function. whole and teeth. <laughs> tons of genes are involved. Tons of proteins are involved. And they all have to interact together in a certain space at a certain time to be able to do that. That's not easy. You don't do that by random chance processes is the problem. So, mm -hmm. yeah, the last sentence in this article... Talking about this research, um, the co-author said, we're now in a position to be able to assess the cognitive and sensory capabilities of extinct animals and explore how the brain evolved in behaviorally extreme dinosaurs like spinosaurs. Well, there you see right in the middle, you can kind of divide that in half right. and see the yeah. observational mm -hmm. science on one side where you can, you can assess the cognitive and sensory capabilities of extinct animals using these reconstructions. That's good observational science. And then the second half of that sentence, you see there the historical science where they're interpreting that in light of their worldview. And because they have the wrong starting point, man's ideas, they're going to come to the wrong conclusions about spinosaurs and their history. Well yeah. said. Okay. So always have to look for those things when you read articles. There are certain things we can know by studying these mm -hmm. fossils, but there's other things that we really cannot know in the, in the sense that they're really based on people's worldview, which affects their interpretation and how they understand that evidence that they're looking about and what looking at and what that means. All right, federal committee recommends assisted dying expansion to some minors. So this is actually a story out of Canada. So mm -hmm. I've got two Canadians up here to talk about it, where they have decided that mature minors, I don't know how you decide yeah, they that, didn't really but anyway, mature minors should have access to medical assistance in dying. Now, they call it MAID for short, but this is not medical assisted dying. This is physician assistant murder is what yep. this amounts to. I mm -hmm. mean, that that's... It's the doctor literally killing the patient because that patient has decided that they want to die. 
Mm -hmm. At least they say they do, but I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things that can go into this. Yep. And I mean, traditionally, minors are not considered competent to make medical decisions. That's just a hallmark of medical ethics. So normally, the parents have to give consent um, for medical decisions that um, they think are is right for the kids. But in this case, the committee recommended to the um, Parliament of Canada, the House of Commons, rather, that um, the government should be able to make the child's final decision, even if it overrides the parents' wishes. Yeah, so all, they literally described it as parental guardianship would interfere with a child's decision to medically end their life. So parents' wishes are just an interference in the life of their child who wants to end their own life. And what I thought was the most um, honest part of this article, because we've seen medical assistance in dying in Canada was only legalized in what, 2016? 2016, yeah. That's not very long ago. No. Um, and it started out with like just people who are terminally ill and who are going to die and they just want to end their life surrounded by their loved ones at their, at their own choice. And then it expanded to people who aren't necessarily terminally ill, they're just suffering. Okay, well now it's people who have poor mental health. So basically now it's just Open season, a any yeah. reason, anyone. I think, I think this month it changed to mental health um, reasons. And now they're wanting to expand it to minors as well. And so they said in the article here, this was the part I thought was very honest, the report noted that rules surrounding assisted death for minors should start strict but may change. So I crossed that and wrote will change because that's the trajectory it will go. It will definitely continue. And they went on to say that most witnesses agree that MAID should only be expanded to mature minors whose natural death is reasonably foreseeable, at least initially. So it's definitely not going to stay with just minors who are, have a terminal illness diagnosis and their lives will eventually end. No, it's now, it, it will be expanded, they're basically saying. Yeah. And then eventually mental health will be added and all, all that stuff. Um, and it'll just be, like, it, it's, it's a culture of death. And yeah. absolutely, the, just the Canadian government just wanting to allow as many people as possible to choose to end their own lives. That's and they fine. really do want the state to take mm -hmm. control, uh, not the parents, but the yep. state to own the children and mm -hmm. control the children. Um, and that's Marxism, you know, and yeah. we're going to be talking about that a little bit. That leads very, very nicely into our next article, mm -hmm. which is how the cult of anti-racism usurps every human's need for religious purpose. Okay, so what this, this article started talking about um, in the beginning was at least what happened at uh, Villanova, where a professor uh, <laughs> who was teaching a uh, summer seminar to these high school students got on, and the seminar was on <laughs> anti-black racism, but apparently he was not left enough or liberal enough in his views. And so um, the, they said that this professor was promoting actually anti-black violence and he was guilty of countless microaggressions. Okay, so they, it, it's, a, it's another story of how the left eat their own, basically. They're never, it's never enough. It's never far mm -hmm. enough. You haven't went far enough in addressing these concerns. But Patricia, I want you to talk about this because this brings up a very, very important thing that we see with the whole, this whole Marxist ideology. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And just as a quick recap, Marx back in the day believed that history is the story of struggle between oppressed and oppressing classes. He viewed it in terms of economic classes. So you have the wealthy and then you have um, the poor um, exploited workers. And then later other people came along and applied those ideas to cultural groups. So some groups within culture are the oppressors. And again, usually that's termed as uh, Christians. Now something about these uh, movements is they have been done in the past in atheistic countries. And in 
uh, an atheistic regime where you're not allowed to believe in God, like what um, this article is talking about, you have to fill that void with something. Mm -hmm. So communism has had a huge appeal, especially to young people in the past, because it gives you a sense of purpose, it gives you a sense of community, a sense of meaning and working for something important, bigger than yourself. And what's worth pointing out about these types of movements is they can be sometimes difficult to argue with in the sense that they point out real problems in the world, real instances of the world being broken. And the Bible gives us a a starting point for why the world is broken and Mm -hmm. why the there are problems like um, genuine um, racism and sin against other people. But then what happens is they, they point out real problems, but then they propose the wrong solutions because they're starting with the wrong worldview foundations. And those solutions are usually some sort of workspace salvation plan, which involves some yeah. sort of revolution in the sense of cultural revolution to overthrow the oppressing classes. But then the salvation plan ends up being hopeless and causing a lot more devastation and more heartache and creating more problems than it starts with because you have that wrong worldview foundation when this guy in the article was really good about pointing out towards the end how actually the solution to racism and these problems is starting with the right foundation which although he didn't say it is god's word that's what gives us the basis for fighting things like real racism in the first place so Mm -hmm. yeah like you were saying with these atheistic regimes and communism basically like um being so accepted by young people we're we're seeing the same thing happening in the west you have all these young people who who i mean studies show the the younger generations are more atheistic than any generation in, in here in America, at least previously. And so they, they don't have hope. They don't have meaning. They don't have purpose because all that's been stripped away without a belief in God and in his word. And so they, they don't have that foundation and you're never going to have a heart that doesn't have an idol on it, right? Like there's always right. someone sitting on the throne of your heart. And so if you don't have uh, Christ and, and the word of God to provide um, that proper worldview, you're going to still have a worldview. You're still going to have a religion. It's going to be something else. And so this article starts with in the absence of any religious sense of meaning in life substitutes rush in to fill the void. There's not just going to be some neutral void in your heart. (laughs) And it's in this case, it's going to be these kinds of teachings that are catching on so rapidly in our culture. And some people wonder what's going on. Well, there's a void and it's being filled, just filled with the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things too, the author brought out was that the parents of many of these children um, are wealthy. And um, a lot of times they're so focused on the material aspects Mm -hmm. of life and gaining money and gaining prestige for their children that they're, (laughs) they don't have a relationship even with their children. Like that's what leaves their children so vulnerable and so open because they're not, they're not feeding into their children children's life and teaching them the things they Mm -hmm. should be. And I think it's just a reminder to all of us as parents that, I mean, everybody is susceptible to this. You know, we, we tend to fill our lives with lots of things as adults, you know, whether it's social media or friends or hobbies or even church, um, whatever it may be, you know, Mm -hmm. all those things. But, but as parents, you know, it's really, really important that we, we understand that our role is to teach our children, um, the truths from God's, the truths of God's word. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's one of the things that we really emphasize here at Answer and Genesis and the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. And for several years now, we've had 10 uh, kids that are 10 and under free, right? We want parents to bring their children here. We want them to mm-hmm. really put those truths into their minds and hearts. And so we try to make that as accessible as possible to people because we realize what these kids are up against and what the world is teaching them. Yeah. And we want them to have that strong foundation, that strong worldview to be able to stand against those things. Absolutely. All right. So our last article here, we might finally know why curly hair exists. Okay. So we know you've all wondered, you've all (laughs) wondered why does curly hair exist? Well, this article really doesn't get your answer, but anyways, we're going to, we're going to talk about it. So, so, 
What they were trying to do is really figure out from an evolutionary standpoint why there is variety in hair. Like, why do some people have um, straight hair? Why do some people have curly hair? Why do people have sometimes have wavy hair? You know, it's like in between. We don't see this anywhere else in the animal kingdom. So why, evolutionarily speaking, do we have that? Now, to make a long story short, they basically decide that it's <laughs> thermoregulation, okay? Because we have to do a lot of things that create um, our bodies are metabolizing a lot because we're walking and we're hunting and we're, you know, doing all these things that require a lot of energy. And so therefore we give off a lot of heat as a result of that. So this helps us regulate the heat. Yes. That's, that's a conclusion at least. Yeah, because curly hair is like slightly more insulating so you don't lose heat as fast enough. Um, but this is kind of an example of how if you start with evolutionary assumptions, you can look back at basically any trait and come up with some sort of evolutionary explanation yeah. in hindsight to explain it. And then this, it's called an appeal to the possibility fallacy can come in where it's like, well, this could have happened, therefore it must have happened, therefore scientists think this is what happened. And yeah. then it's kind of presented as truth, even though it's kind of a guess based on evolutionary starting points when from a business biblical view, it makes a lot of sense that God created humans and um, different creatures with a lot of genetic variability in the first place. And then as um, the populations separate out, you get um, certain combinations of genes that are well suited for different environments. So maybe curly hair for places where you need more of that thermoregulation. So Mm -hmm. the study that they did to determine this though was interesting. (laughs) So they took these like thermal mannequins and they had one that didn't have any hair and they had one with straight hair and they had one with like wavy, loosely curly hair and then one with really tight curly hair. And then they put heat lamps over top of them and then recorded what happened to the thermal mannequins underneath. And it's like, well, humans are a lot more complicated than a thermal mannequin. We have like, we have sweat glands, we have blood flowing through our bodies that helps us regulate. Uh, Like we're able to do things to help us regulate. But so I thought it was great. This one sentence that, that the article said, commenting on how like the study might not be the world's greatest study three wigs and a thermal mannequin does not a theory prove <laughs> words to live by so true, so true. yeah so, well, i mean myself as a scientific researcher when i read this i was kind of like come on like can't we design a better study than this like, this just seems kind of pathetic to me but they basically their conclusion was that the curly hair because it stands away from the head more will allow the individuals to regulate their body heat better you know for the exchange of heat and all of that but again, I think that's very preliminary, um, I might say, because again, you have to do this on on living human Humans. beings who, <laughs> who actually have to thermoregulate yeah. and, and all of that. And, and they do admit the paper has limitations and there's problems with it. Mm. But, but again, like, like Patricia said, we can understand this from a biblical mm-hmm. standpoint that God, God is a God of um, variety and diversity. He loves mm-hmm. that. We see that very much in his creation. And this is just one more uh, fantastic example of that. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, they're trying to give glory to evolution instead of glory to God is really what yep. it comes down to for the beautiful diversity God's made. So to end here, I want to tell you about a couple of things that we have coming up, and then we'll tell you about a few of our resources that we recommend um, in relation to what we talked about today. So we have our Answers Homeschool Experience coming up in May, Equipping Generations for the King. So this is a great, and we call this an experience, not a conference, because... When you come to our homeschool experience here, you're going to do a lot more than just have, we will have some keynote speakers and they're absolutely fantastic. But 
We also have a lot of really fun workshops and programs for families to attend mm -hmm. uh, while they are here, uh, both at the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. You also get admission to both of those. It's for five days, May 8th through the 12th. Um, lots of concerts, animal encounters. There is all, there is so much to do. It's not even funny. So uh, it, I encourage you to go to AnswersHomeschool.com and register for that and register your family and take advantage of that. We also, just to go along with that, we also have a homeschool curriculum for Bible for kindergarten through fifth grade. We have uh, three years of a four-year curriculum out um, right now. And uh, Avery here and um, one of our other speakers, Brian Osborne, they create short little videos for these called Building Blocks. They are so good. Not only are they funny, because they are, but they also teach really good biblical truths to your kids in a way that they'll really relate to and understand. And so that's just a fantastic curriculum. And um, yeah, you got to do it just for the video. Ah, so we really get fun. pretty creative in what we come up with to teach kids the yeah. various truths. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of resources here. Glass House um, is shattering the myth of evolution. So um, we talked about, again, how evolution is a history historical science and need to understand it that way. Mm -hmm. And so this goes through a lot of those common evolutionary arguments that you are used and gives you, again, the relevant biblical information on that, as well as the scientific information to help combat those ideas. You want to talk about fault lines? Oh, yeah, sure. So this is a really great book by um, Vody Bachman, which goes back to some of the Marxism kind of stuff we were talking about. So he explains where these ideas come from. And he does a really good job of explaining how some of these like social justice movements or ideas about um, micro progressions and things like that are a kind of a counterfeit gospel. Like he, he does a good mm -hmm. job of explaining how it is a works-based salvation that actually leads to hopelessness. And then he shows um, how a, a Christian worldview, the real gospel, is the right foundation to start with. So definitely recommend this if you're concerned about where the culture is going and you want to know more about why we're seeing a lot of the things happen, uh, happening that we are in society. And then dinosaurs for kids. This is a great one. Avery's got young children, so I'm sure they like this one. Oh, book. yes. <laughs> so, so this is a great book that really, um, I love the illustrations in it, but mm -hmm. what it does is it really teaches, again, that biblical worldview when it comes to dinosaurs, but also the evolutionary worldview and why that's wrong and the problems there are with it and the right view of um, dinosaurs from a biblical standpoint. And so, like I say, really great illustrations in there, and kids love dinosaurs. So this is a really Absolutely. great opportunity to talk to them about that and help instruct them in the right way on that. Well, we mm -hmm. are out of time for today, so we'll see you back here next Wednesday.